I'd like to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians as we continue in our preaching series in this letter. And today we're in chapter 3, we're reading verses 1 through to 11. Philippians 3, commencing at verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And the reason is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Praise be to God for his word this morning. Allow me to lead us uh, in prayer. Gracious God, as we uh, now delve into your word together, we pray that you might help us to see Jesus this morning with fresh eyes, that we may gaze on his glory and his majesty that we may revel in the grace of Christ and that we may come to know him and love him more. This is our prayer today. We ask this for his name and for his sake. Amen. You know, in recent weeks, there's been some reasonably well-known Christians who have communicated through uh, things like social media that they have chosen to renounce their faith, or at least they've expressed serious doubts over the, the validity of what they've believed about the Christian faith. Some of you might be familiar with the people I'm talking, with, uh, talking about. Now, I'd imagine if you actually su- suggested to these particular people at an earlier point in their Christian life that they would come to what they've just, uh, you know, sort of uh, communicated to the world now, I'm sure they would have said, you're absolutely crazy. They, would have, they, wouldn't have, uh, you know, they wouldn't have entertained that thought in any way, shape or form at that particular point. 
You know, we're not just talking about people here who have just this minimal connection with the church. These people have been actively involved in the church over many years. One of them has written books, another guy's written in, you know, a huge amount of, of praise and worship songs that the, the, the churches have sung for the last 20 or so years. It's interesting that there's a growing trend, particularly here in the West, in our, uh, our developed world, of seeing people who were once identified as Christian get to the point that, of leaving the church. But not just of leaving the church, many of them are also now rejecting the faith outright. These people are being referred to as uh, what has been called the duns. They are done with church. They are done with Christianity, and in many cases they are done altogether with God. One Christian blogger and author states this, he says, It's rare that people apostatize, that is, abandon or renounce their faith, all of a sudden. Rather, there will almost always, or they will almost always have been, sorry, there must have always been a long trajectory away from genuine Christian faith and practice and toward distinctly unchristian faith and practice. I expect that those who knew these men well, those who saw their lives up close, could tell of a slow drift rather than a sudden deconversion. He goes on to say, We are all people of trajectories who either wittingly or unwittingly either deliberately or carelessly, point ourselves along the narrow way that leads to salvation or the broad way that leads to destruction. And the question that, uh, that I think, uh, or that I want to pose to us all today, and a question which I think is addressed very much here in this passage in Philippians 3, 1 to 11, and, and also a passage that gives a wise counsel about, is this, this question, and that is, how can we... As followers of Jesus today, seek to protect ourselves from suffering a similar fate as these duns. How can we do that? How can we develop a trajectory in our lives that continually points us to that narrow road of salvation? Here in this passage this morning, I uh, want to highlight four things. Four things that, uh, that, that, that will help us to do that. There are the, th- the four things of this. A command, a warning, an evaluation, and a motivation. Okay? A command, a warning, an evaluation, and a motivation. We'll see these things as we work through our passage today. So let's begin with the command. We see that in verse 1 of our passage today where the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. See, the answer that Paul gives to how we can remain firm in our faith is simply by rejoicing in the Lord. You might think that that sounds fairly, uh, fairly simple. It's interesting, in the movie City Slickers, some of you might have seen that, a fellow called Billy Crystal who uh, was the main character in that, he goes on this cattle drive and, uh, in, and he goes on this cattle drive, he's having a bit of a midlife crisis and his marriage is, is stale, he's, he's getting no kind of satisfaction or joy or anything out of his job or any aspect of his life for that matter and he goes on this place, his wife tells him, go and find your smile. 
And so he goes, and as, he's, uh, as they're out on the trail, he's uh, having a bit of a chat with the, uh, the head uh, cowboy, the guy who's in charge of the drive, a guy called Curly. And, uh, and Curly says to him, he says, you guys are all the same. You all come out here with the same kind of you know, issues and that sort of stuff. And he says, and I tell him the same thing. He says, do you want to know what the secret to life is? And Billy Crystal's character, of course, is really, you know, ears are all up, ready to, ready to hear that. And he lifts up his index finger and he says, the secret to life is just one thing, one thing. And he says, but you've got to find out what that one thing is. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Here in this passage, Paul tells us what that one thing is. He says, learn and, or discover and learn how to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Taking into consideration the various nuances, I'm not going to go into the Greek language and all that sort of stuff behind it, but what Paul is writing here is a command, but it's not just a command, it's a command that we shouldn't just obey once, but it's a command that we need to keep on obeying regularly. It, should, it could be better read as this. It says, I command you to be always making every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord. So it's not just a one-off thing. Paul is saying that, he, that we need, as the people of God, to continue, Continually, minute by minute, day by day, make every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, many people often associate being joyful with being happy. But there's a significant difference between the two. Happiness is dependent upon favourable circumstances. That word, uh, happy, uh, the root word that that, uh, that, that that comes from, basically you can uh, also get the word happenstance. You know, ever heard that term before? Perhaps some of the older people in our congregation. Happenstance or circumstance, that sort of thing. Happiness is dependent upon favourable circumstances. The better the circumstances are, the more happy we're able to be. But the less favourable the circumstances are, the less happy we often are. Joy, though, and the kind of joy that Paul is talking about here in this passage, is not dependent upon circumstances. What Paul is saying here is that true joy is found not in circumstances, but rather it is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In other words, this joy stems from having a relationship with Jesus. And this joy comes from a deep confidence. It comes from a deep trust that is developed through knowing Jesus personally in our lives and through seeing Jesus prove himself in our lives time and time again. It comes from knowing who Jesus is what his character is like. It comes from knowing Jesus' purposes, what he has done and what he plans to do. But it also comes from knowing his power, knowing that he's able to help us no matter what. It's being able to say this, because I know Jesus is in control, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. This joy is a settled rest and confidence in Jesus and in his love for you and for me. 
And when we have that, when we understand that, when we grasp that, we can find that even in the most difficult and challenging of circumstances, we can have joy. We can have joy knowing that Jesus is in our corner. The uh, pastor and author F.B. Meyer writes this, speaking of this joy, he says, The joy of the Lord arises from leaving all our burdens at his feet, from believing that he has forgiven the past as absolutely as the tide obliterates children's writing in the sand that nothing can come which he does not appoint or permit, that he is doing all things as wisely and kindly as possible, and that in him we have been lifted out of the realm of sin, sorrow and death and into the realm of divine light and love, that we have already commenced the eternal life and that before us forever there is a fellowship with Christ so rapturous and exalting that human language can only describe it as unspeakable. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. Now, Paul, do you think Paul would give a command like that if he didn't think that we could obey the command? Do you think God would allow this command to be put in the Scriptures if, if God knew that there was no way in the world that we could, in fact, obey that command? No. So if it's there, then it's something which it is possible to do, to rejoice in the Lord. And as followers of Christ, I, you know, we, we need to be encouraged that this is the trajectory that God wants our lives to be on, that we are people who are continually learning more and more how to rejoice in the Lord day by day. And that rejoicing comes through that settled conviction that God is on the throne that he is on the throne and, and that he is sovereign over all things that are happening in this world. But most importantly, he is sovereign over everything that is happening in your life and that nothing in your life occurs or happens without God knowing about it and with God, without God having a purpose in it, but a kind and loving and generous purpose in that as well. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. Then Paul gives us a warning in verses 2 to 6 as we follow along. It says this, Paul says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, if joy is central to the Christian's life and faith, then we need to beware of that, those things which will actually rob us of that joy. And one of the main culprits Paul points to here in this passage is legalism. Because legalism will steal our joy because what it does is it reduces the Christian life to keeping a set of, relig of religious rules. That's what legalism does. It just boils it all down and says, you've just got to obey these rules. Now, anyone will tell you that if your life is just founded on just obeying rules, you're not going to get much joy in that, are you? 
Now, yes, living in a right relationship with God does involve living according to his ways. We see that in Ephesians 2.10. But keeping a set of religious rules as a way of, of trying to earn God's favour ends up leaving us sad and joyless. And it's, a really, it's an incredibly poor substitute for a living, dynamic walk with God. Paul says three times, look out, look out, look out. Do you get the picture? He's saying, beware, beware. He points out here the, the Judaizers and the false teachers, those people who sought to undermine the good news of the gospel. It's a bit hard for us to understand the level of, of Paul's disdain here for these people, but he speaks firstly of their character when he refers to them as dogs. Dogs in, in the Jewish particular context, this particular cultural context of the first century, was a derogatory term. The Jews referred to Gentiles, that is everyone who's not a Jew, as dogs. And not the fluffy, nice kind that, you know, we all like to sort of, you know, yeah. No, these, these were the dogs who were the, 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 the mangy, filthy beasts who just wandered the streets. I don't know if you've ever been overseas, particularly to Asian countries. You wander around, you see a lot of these, these mangy-looking dogs that are just, you know, they're in garbage bins and they just wander the streets and that sort of thing, and they're vicious and they're horrible and they're unclean animals. And that's the kind of picture that Paul is painting here for us. It speaks about their character, that they are, they're these just, they are looking to feed and on the refuge and the garbage of that is around about them. And he's saying that that's the kind of character of these people. But then he goes on to speak about the conduct where he refers to them as evildoers. The doers of evil, he says. And what Paul is saying here is what these people are doing is they are, they are aggressively promoting their beliefs, thinking that their beliefs are true. These people are convinced that what they're teaching is true and good and right for everyone. But Paul is saying that it's false. And because it's false, they're aggressively promoting evil beliefs. They are doers of evil, workers of evil. But then he also speaks of their creed. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. In other words, these people believed or they viewed circumcision, the Jewish rite of circumcision, as a prerequisite to salvation. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, we, we read about this where it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is the Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, what these people are doing, what Paul is warning about is that, he, that the danger, there are dangers here because these people are preaching a, a so-called gospel of salvation that is based upon not just faith in Jesus Christ, but about faith plus works. And Christians, we need to be aware of adding things to the gospel. The Bible very, very clearly states that a person is saved through faith in Christ alone. That's it, period, nothing else. 
And yet we've seen through Christian history, not just here in the, the New Testament church, but right through history of how Christians then have, have taken that, that aspect of salvation. And not only have they said that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, but it comes through faith in Christ plus adhering to certain religious practices and traditions. And the minute we begin to add any human endeavours to the gospel in order for a person to be saved then we deny the gospel and we actually undermine the grace of God. Paul writes about this in Galatians 1. And he even goes on to say that, you know, even those who have started out, even we who have started out by responding to the gospel in faith, can quickly fall in then to a works-based righteousness. That is that we, uh, we think that, you know, having come to a saving faith in Christ, that we've, then we've got to continually keep earning God's favour through the stuff that we do. And Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, this. He says, if you believe this, and the Galatians, some of them in the Galatian church, where he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Paul is saying here, you know, you, you started out right. You got it right, you know, at the beginning. You knew that, that you could only come to, to, to salvation through faith in Christ alone, through his finished work on the cross, through his resurrection. That's the only way you could be saved. But he says, but now you've gone away from that and now you're trying to earn God's favour through, you know, all of this sort of legalism stuff. Paul says, Why? We cannot earn God's favour in any way, shape or form by any righteousness of our own. It's interesting uh, talking to, um, the person will remain nameless, but talking to uh, a person that's uh, in the last couple of weeks, and they've got a friend who, uh, who says that, uh, you know, that, um, that God's a God of love. Surely, you know, we're not sinners. If God looks at us with love, when well, we can't be sinners... You know, so God's going to just, you know, just pour out His His love on us, and uh, and you know, we don't have to we don't have to uh, worry about uh, you know how we, we can live as we like. That's the world's mentality. And then when they when they when they sort of think about that, they think, well, um, you know, that uh, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but anyway, let me let me let me come back. Sorry, um, this is what happens when I get away from my notes. Because I'm confusing the situation. I'm sorry, I'm just lacking a bit of sleep at the moment. The Bible, let, let, let me come back. The, the, the scriptures really clearly state this. All right, and I just want to make this as clear as I possibly can this morning, okay? Because I think there are probably even some people here in our congregation this morning who believe this. Is that they think that they can earn their way to heaven by being a good person. That providing that I live a good kind of life, you know, I don't murder anyone, you know, I don't steal from anyone, you know, I kind of try to help out my fellow, fellow human beings as much as I can. You know, being a nice kind of person, 
that God will look on that favourably and think, oh, yeah, you know what? You're a pretty good kind of a, of a bloke or a, or a lady. And so, yeah, come on. Come on into my kingdom. You know, God sort of weighs up their good and their bad on these kind of scales, and if their good outweighs their bad, then they get in. That's how people in our world today often see this. But the Bible says clearly, folks, that's wrong. Because there's no way in the world that that any of our righteousness is going to be viewed by God as good. In fact, the scales are completely the other way. There is nothing about us in any way, shape or form that could earn God's favour whatsoever. And every single one of us are in a helpless and hopeless situation unless God steps in. And he's done that through Jesus. You know the question, why, why, does a loving, why could a loving God send anyone to hell? You hear that question? God doesn't send people to hell. In fact, God himself has, tried to, has, has sent his son that, so that no one need to go to hell. The question we should ask ourselves is this, why should a holy and righteous God allow any of us into his heaven? The only way that we can be put right with God, the only way we can have any kind of of hope of entering into God's eternal kingdom is through faith in Christ and through recognising that his death and resurrection, his death was was our death on the cross. He died for our sins. We needed a saviour. We needed saving from our sin and Christ, he dealt with that on the cross. And as we put our faith in him, as we, as we claim Christ as our substitute, the one dying in our place, dying the death that we deserved, as we put our faith and trust in him and our hope in him, that that is the only way that we can be made right with God. Have I made that clear? Because I'd hate for you to go away this morning thinking I really didn't understand what Duncan was saying there. It's interesting, Paul goes on to define who the real people of God are here in these verses, where he says that we are the circumcision, that we are, we are the ones who are, who are right with God, who are part of God's covenant family, those who worship God by his spirit, who glory in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh with regards to righteousness. They are the ones whom can ha- who can have that confidence that they have been put right with God that they are indeed God's children. It's interesting that Paul then goes on to say, you know, if anyone could put confidence in the flesh or, the, or human works and efforts, then Paul certainly could. He lists them in verses 4 to 6 here in this passage, and I'm not going to go into them now. You can read them a little bit later for yourself. But what Paul is laying out here is his religious pedigree. Those things which a Jew would highlight as making them right with God. And from a, from a Jewish perspective, from a, from a law perspective, from a works-based righteousness perspective, Paul's rating was AAA+. Plus. You couldn't get any better credentials. Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
If this is what a person could have confidence in when it came to securing God's favour and a place in his eternal kingdom, then Paul could be right at the front of the queue. But then that leads Paul to make an evaluation, and we see that in verses 7 to 9. Because surprisingly, though, he says, you know, he goes on to say that the things that many would consider to be profitable when it comes to a right standing before God, Paul actually considers to be absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. Look at what he says here from verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See, in the account book of Paul's life, his entries on the profit side, on the gain side, he, he transferred to the loss side. He never saw them as, as things of profit, but he saw them as things of loss, of liability. They were not merely useless, they were in fact detrimental to righteousness with God. That word counted that Paul uses here is in what they call the perfect tense, which means that Paul has made this particular evaluation at, at a certain point in his at a certain point of time in the past, but that he continues to go on considering them as loss. It's something that he considers lost day by day. Now, Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying about this, he says, everything belonged in the lost column if it was not tied to Christ's righteousness. As Paul so dramatically discovered on the road to Damascus, a person can have tons of religion without having one ounce of salvation. Did you get that? A person can have tons of religion without having one ounce of salvation. And that should make all of us seriously consider where we stand with God. Particularly if we, you know, if, if coming to church and, and all the religious stuff is, 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 is just part of our day-to-day -day, day -day lives, it can quickly become that which we worship. It can quickly become that which takes up the, the, the importance of our lives and, and, and Jesus gets pushed to the side. Paul counted all these things as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And this is something which God's been challenging me afresh on just, just recently. And it is this, is that, you know, when you've been in Christian circles for a long, long time, what can happen is that, that the the day-to-day -day ritual of that can become that which is the most foundational and most important to your life. And Jesus, even though, yes, you, you, know, you, you, you want to honour him and, and, uh, and say that he's your Lord, that, that Jesus sort of kind of fades away into the distance. Folks, the most important thing that any of us needs to have as the focus of our life is a deep love for Jesus. Yes, we are people of the word, but we don't worship the word, we worship Jesus. Yeah. 
the one who is revealed in the word. Paul says that he counts all things loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And here again, he puts this relationship with Jesus at the very centre of a Christian's life. And he joy, Paul joyfully accepted the loss of all things for that which was infinitely far greater and that was having Jesus as his Saviour and as his Lord. It's interesting, as you go through Paul's life, you see Paul, you know, some of the things written about Paul in the, uh, in the New Testament. You see that Paul suffered a great deal of loss for Christ. He lost his reputation. He lost his, his status in Roman society and in Jewish society. He lost his wealth. He even lost his freedom as he sits here under house arrest in Rome. Paul suffered a great deal of loss. But Paul, he couldn't care a bit about that, couldn't care two hoots about that because as far as he was concerned, he had the most wonderful thing going and that was he had Jesus as his saviour. He had Jesus as his Lord. He had Jesus as his constant companion day by day. He had Jesus as the focus and love of his life. And the question we need to ask ourselves today is this, is that whom we see Jesus as in our lives? Paul says that all this other stuff is just like rubbish and that rubbish is a very, very sanitary kind of way of saying excrement. That's what Paul is referring to here, all this stuff. Kind of reminds me of the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price there in Matthew 13. You know, the man who, who, who goes out into a field and he finds a treasure there in the field and so he quickly buries it again, goes back, sells everything he has in order to buy that field because he knows that nothing that he has now, you know, is, is anything, anything close to what that field is and that treasure there in that field. And of course, it's speaking about a relationship with Christ. It's speaking about God. Can we make such an evaluation in ourselves as Paul does here? Are we trusting in, in, in any of our works to earn God's approval rather than in trusting Christ's saving work alone? Are we basing our righteousness on the things we have done and trying to do or are we basing them on Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection? But having done that, do we then consider knowing and belonging to and living for Christ to be far more value than anything else in this life? The question here is, what are you, what am I, what are we willing to count as loss for Christ? What are we willing to, to gladly give up and sacrifice for having Christ first and foremost. Are you willing to give up everything for Jesus? Seriously. Are you willing to give up your house? 
You're willing to give up your car? Are you willing to give up all your material possessions? Are you willing to give up those whom you love most in your life for Jesus? That's a pretty tough kind of question to ask, isn't it? Because the things that we're not willing to give up for Christ, well, they're the things we worship, not Jesus. Paul says we need to make this kind of evaluation. And then he goes on finally to, to, to speak about a motivation in verses 10 and 11. See, as far as Paul was concerned, he had a new priority in his life. Look at what it says. Paul says, reading at the end of verse 9, he says, you know, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, in order that I may know him, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says his new priority is this, that of knowing Christ and him only, of experiencing his power at work in his life, of being ready to suffer for Christ, for the, for the name of Christ, of being willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ and being willing to die to self and for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Paul wanted to progressively become more deeply and intim intimately acquainted with Jesus. That is what Paul is saying here. And Jerry Bridges puts it this way where he says, This is the heartbeat of the godly person. As he contemplates God in the awesomeness of his infinite majesty, power and holiness, and then as he dwells upon the riches of his mercy and grace poured out at Calvary, his heart is captivated, is captivated by this one who could love him so. He is satisfied with God alone, but he is never satisfied with his present experience of God. He always yearns for more. Do we yearn like that for God? Paul also looked forward. I'm oh, sorry, Paul is saying, you know, in this particular passage, you know, there's no power in the law. There's no power to overcome sin within, you know, our human capabilities, within the flesh. There's no real power for spiritual service within our human bodies, within our flesh. There's no power for victory in our flesh. There's no power for witnessing in our flesh. But what he says is that I've been operating without power and now what Paul is seeing, he's saying, I see all the power of Christ in his resurrection and Paul says, that's the kind of power I want to know in my life. And folks, as believers in Christ, that is the kind of power that is available to us in our Christian lives. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That is the kind of power that is available to us. 
And Paul looked forward with the insurance that he would also share in that resurrection, of life, that resurrection life of Christ for eternity. For Paul, there was nothing better. It was what was, it was, it's what drove Paul to do the things he did, to live the kind of life he did, to carry out the kind of self-sacrificing ministry for Christ that he did, to be willing to pour out his life, as he says in Ephesians 2, as a drink offering to God. Because this is what gave Paul the greatest joy. And it was that joy that enabled him to remain faithful no matter what. Let me finish with this. Can I ask you this morning, or rather, allow God's Spirit to ask you this morning in your hearts, where and in what are you finding your joy right now? Seriously, where, whereabouts and, and, and in what are you finding your joy right now? What are the things that do you think of in your minds right now about your life that bring you the most joy? If it's not Christ, then can I say that you are very much in danger of one day becoming one of those people they refer to as being done. True joy comes not from circumstances, but from a person, Jesus Christ, and in living for him. May each and every one of us, today and always, know that kind of joy in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, um, we just want to leave here Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in Jesus. Rejoicing in him because of who he is, first and foremost. But rejoicing in all that he's done for us. May we, each and every one of us here in this place, this week, make it our aim, our goal, our purpose to discover more about Jesus and to, and to be determined to, to seek after him and to learn to love him more in our hearts. Because if it, you know, when, when Paul says you know, that, uh, that he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that is actually going to help us to do that is by first of all having Jesus as the one who captivates our hearts first and foremost. Lord Jesus, come and, and take that place in our lives. We invite you to today. We want to surrender to you, Lord Jesus. We want to ask particularly for anyone here this morning who right now is, is they, they know in their heart of hearts that... that, that that their joy is not in you, that it's in, that it's in other things. Lord, today, come and fill their hearts afresh with the power of your love. Lord, will you come and, and enable us through your Holy Spirit to, to, to see you with fresh eyes today and always, that you are the Lord who is lifted high, 
there is no one like you. That you are the one who is willing to give up everything for us in order that we may have that life in your name. May we ourselves be willing to give up everything of us in order to love you more and to walk in the joy of that. Rejoice in the Lord is the command. Help us to live that command this week. Amen.